Section 28 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1 by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Youth 2, Part 2. When he came back from his work, he would look into this shop. It was not often that he did not see Sabine. They bowed and smiled. Sometimes she was at the door, and then they would exchange a few words, and he would open the door and call the little girl and hand her a packet of sweets. One day he decided to go in. He pretended that he wanted some waistcoat buttons. She began to look for them, but she could not find them. All the buttons were mixed up. It was impossible to pick them out. She was a little put out that he should see her untidiness. He laughed at it and bent over the better to see it. No, she said, trying to hide the drawers with her hands. Don't look. It is a dreadful muddle. She went on looking, but Christophe embarrassed her. She was cross, and as she pushed the drawer back, she said, I can't find any. Go to Lizzie in the next street. She is sure to have them. She has everything that people want. He laughed at her way of doing business. Do you send all your customers away like that? Well, you are not the first, said Sabine warmly. And yet she was a little ashamed. It is too much trouble to tidy up, she said. I put off doing it from day to day. But I shall certainly do it tomorrow. Shall I help you? asked Christophe. She refused. She would gladly have accepted, but she dared not for fear of gossip. And besides, it humiliated her. They went on talking. And your buttons? she said to Christophe a moment later. Aren't you going to Lizzie? Never, said Christophe. I shall wait until you have tidied up. Oh! said Sabine, who had already forgotten what she had just said. Don't wait all that time. Her frankness delighted them both. Christophe went to the drawer that she had shut. Let me look. She ran to prevent his doing so. No, now please. I am sure I haven't any. I bet you have. At once he found the button he wanted, and was triumphant. He wanted others. He wanted to go on rummaging, but she snatched the box from his hands, and, hurt in her vanity, she began to look herself. The light was fading. She went to the window. Christophe sat a little away from her. The little girl clambered on to his knees. He pretended to listen to her chatter and answered her absently. He was looking at Sabine, and she knew that he was looking at her. She bent over the box. He could see her neck and a little of her cheek, and as he looked he saw that she was blushing, and he blushed too. The child went on talking. No one answered her. Sabine did not move. Christophe could not see what she was doing. He was sure she was doing nothing. She was not even looking at the box in her hands. The silence went on and on. The little girl grew uneasy and slipped down from Christophe's knees. Why don't you say anything? Sabine turned sharply and took her in her arms. 
The box was spilled on the floor. The little girl shouted with glee and ran on hands and knees after the buttons rolling under the furniture. Sabine went to the window again and laid her cheek against the pane. She seemed to be absorbed in what she saw outside. "'Good night,' said Christophe, ill at ease. She did not turn her head and said in a low voice, "'Good night.' On Sundays the house was empty during the afternoon. The whole family went to church for vespers. Sabine did not go. Christophe jokingly reproached her with it once when he saw her sitting at her door in the little garden, while the lovely bells were bawling themselves hoarse, summoning her. She replied in the same tone that only mass was compulsory, not vespers. It was then no use, and perhaps a little indiscreet to be too zealous, and she liked to think that God would be rather pleased than angry with her. "'You have made God in your own image,' said Christophe. "'I should be so bored if I were in his place,' replied she with conviction. "'You would not bother much about the world if you were in his place.' "'All that I should ask of it would be that it should not bother itself about me.' "'Perhaps it would be none the worse for that,' said Christophe. "'Shh!' cried Sabine. "'We are being irreligious.' "'I don't see anything irreligious in saying that God is like you. "'I am sure he is flattered.' "'Will you be silent?' said Sabine, half laughing, half angry. "'She was beginning to be afraid that God would be scandalized. "'She quickly turned the conversation. "'Besides,' she said, "'it is the only time in the week when one can enjoy the garden in peace.' "'Yes,' said Christophe. "'They are gone.' "'They looked at each other.' "'How silent it is!' muttered Sabine. "'We are not used to it. One hardly knows where one is.' "'Oh!' cried Christophe suddenly and angrily. "'There are days when I would like to strangle her.' There was no need to ask of whom he was speaking. "'And the others?' asked Sabine gaily. "'True,' said Christophe, a little abashed. "'There is Rosa.' "'Poor child!' said Sabine. They were silent. "'If only it were always as it is now,' sighed Christophe. She raised her laughing eyes to his, and then dropped them. He saw that she was working. "'What are you doing?' he asked. The fence of ivy that separated the two gardens was between them. "'Look,' she said, lifting a basin that she was holding in her lap. "'I am shelling peas.' She sighed. "'But that is not unpleasant,' he said, laughing. "'Oh,' she replied, "'it is disgusting, always having to think of dinner.' "'I bet that if it were possible,' he said, "'you would go without your dinner rather than have the trouble of cooking it.' "'That's true,' cried she. "'Wait, I'll come and help you.' He climbed over the fence and came to her. She was sitting in a chair in the door. He sat on a step at her feet. He dipped into her lap for handfuls of green pods, and he poured the little round peas into the basin that Sabini held between her knees. He looked down. He saw Sabini's black stockings, clinging to her ankles and feet. One of her feet was half out of its shoe. He dared not raise his eyes to look at her. The air was heavy, the sky was dull, and clouds hung low. There was no wind. No leaf stirred. The garden was enclosed within high walls. There was no world beyond them. 
The child had gone out with one of the neighbors. They were alone. They said nothing. They could say nothing. Without looking, he went on taking handfuls of peas from Sabine's lap. His fingers trembled as he touched her. Among the fresh, smooth pods, they met Sabine's fingers, and they trembled, too. They could not go on. They sat still, not looking at each other. She leaned back in her chair with her lips half open and her arms hanging. He sat at her feet, leaning against her. Along his shoulder and arm, he could feel the warmth of Sabine's leg. They were breathless. Christophe laid his hands against the stones to cool them. One of his hands touched Sabine's foot, that she had thrust out of her shoe, and he left it there, could not move it. They shivered. Almost they lost control. Christophe's hand closed on the slender toes of Sabine's little foot. Sabine turned cold. The sweat broke out on her brow. She leaned towards Christophe. Familiar voices broke the spell. They trembled. Christophe leaped to his feet and crossed the fence again. Sabine picked up the shells in her lap and went in. In the yard he turned. She was at her door. They looked at each other. Drops of rain were beginning to patter on the leaves of the trees. She closed her door. Frau Vogel and Rosa came in. He went up to his room. In the yellow light of the waning day, drowned in the torrents of rain, he got up from his desk in response to an irresistible impulse. He ran to his window and held out his arms to the opposite window. At the same moment, through the opposite window in the half-darkness of the room, he saw, he thought he saw, Sabine holding out her arms to him. He rushed from his room. He went downstairs. He ran to the garden fence. At the risk of being seen, he was about to clear it. But when he looked at the window at which she had appeared, he saw that the shutters were closed. The house seemed to be asleep. He stopped. Old Euler, going to his cellar, saw him and called him. He retraced his footsteps. He thought he must have been dreaming. It was not long before Rosa began to see what was happening. She had no diffidence, and she did not yet know what jealousy was. She was ready to give wholly and to ask nothing in return. But if she was sorrowfully resigned to not being loved by Christophe, she had never considered the possibility of Christophe loving another. One evening after dinner she had just finished a piece of embroidery at which she had been working for months. She was happy, and wanted for once in a way to leave her work and go and talk to Christophe. She waited until her mother's back was turned, and then slipped from the room. She crept from the house like a truant. She wanted to go and confound Christophe, who had vowed scornfully that she would never finish her work. She thought it would be a good joke to go and take them by surprise in the street. It was no use the poor child knowing how Christophe felt towards her. She was always inclined to measure the pleasure which others should have at seeing her by that which she had herself in meeting them. She went out. Christophe and Sabine were sitting as usual in front of the house. There was a catch at Rosa's heart, and yet she did not stop for the irrational idea that was in her, and she chafed Christophe warmly. The sound of her shrill voice in the silence of the night struck on Christophe like a false note. 
He started in his chair and frowned angrily. Rosa waved her embroidery in his face, triumphantly. Christophe snubbed her impatiently. "'It is finished, finished,' insisted Rosa. "'Oh, well, go and begin another,' said Christophe curtly. Rosa was crestfallen. All her delight vanished. Christophe went on crossly. "'And when you have done thirty, when you are very old, you will at least be able to say to yourself that your life has not been wasted.' Rosa was near weeping. "'How cross you are, Christophe!' she said. Christophe was ashamed and spoke kindly to her. She was satisfied with so little that she regained confidence, and she began once more to chatter noisily. She could not speak low. She shouted deafeningly, like everybody in the house. In spite of himself, Christophe could not conceal his ill-humour. At first he answered her with a few irritated monosyllables. Then he said nothing at all, turned his back on her, fidgeted in his chair, and ground his teeth as she rattled on. Rosa saw that he was losing his temper and knew that she ought to stop, but she went on louder than ever. Sabine, a few yards away, in the dark, said nothing, watched the scene with ironic impassivity. Then she was weary, and feeling that the evening was wasted, she got up and went in. Christophe only noticed her departure after she had gone. He got up at once, and without ceremony went away with a curt, "'Good evening.' Rosa was left alone in the street, and looked in bewilderment at the door by which he had just gone in. Tears came to her eyes. She rushed in, went up to her room without a sound, so as not to have to talk to her mother, undressed hurriedly, and when she was in her bed, buried under the clothes, sobbed and sobbed. She made no attempt to think over what had passed. She did not ask herself whether Christophe loved Sabine, or whether Christophe and Sabine could not bear her. She knew only that all was lost, that life was useless, that there was nothing left to her but death. Next morning thought came to her once more with eternal elusive hope. She recalled the events of the evening and told herself that she was wrong to attach so much importance to them. No doubt Christophe did not love her. She was resigned to that. Though in her heart she thought, though she did not admit the thought, that in the end she would win his love by her love for him. But what reason had she for thinking that there was anything between Sabine and him? How could he, so clever as he was, love a little creature whose insignificance and mediocrity were patent. She was reassured, but for that she did not watch Christophe any the less closely. She saw nothing all day because there was nothing to see, but Christophe, seeing her prowling about him all day long without any sort of explanation, was peculiarly irritated by it. She set the crown on her efforts in the evening, when she appeared again, and sat with them in the street. The scene of the previous evening was repeated. Rosa talked alone, but Sabine did not wait so long before she went indoors, and Christophe followed her example. Rosa could no longer pretend that her presence was not unwelcome, but the unhappy girl tried to deceive herself. She did not perceive that she could have done nothing worse than to try so to impose on herself, and with her usual clumsiness she went on through the succeeding days. 
Next day, with Rosa sitting by his side, Christophe waited in vain for Sabine to appear. The day after, Rosa was alone. They had given up the struggle. But she gained nothing by it save resentment from Christophe, who was furious at being robbed of his beloved evenings, his only happiness. He was the less inclined to forgive her, for being absorbed with his own feelings, he had no suspicion of Rosa's. Sabine had known them for some time. She knew that Rosa was jealous, even before she knew that she herself was in love. But she said nothing about it, and with the natural cruelty of a pretty woman, who is certain of her victory, in quizzical silence she watched the futile efforts of her awkward rival. Left mistress of the field of battle, Rosa gazed piteously upon the results of her tactics. The best thing she could have done would have been not to persist, and to leave Christophe alone, at least for the time being. But that was not what she did, and as the worst thing she could have done was to talk to him about Sabine, that was precisely what she did. With a fluttering at her heart, by way of sounding him, she said timidly that Sabine was pretty. Christophe replied curtly that she was very pretty, and although Rosa might have foreseen the reply she would provoke, her heart thumped when she heard him. She knew that Sabine was pretty, but she had never particularly remarked it. Now she saw her for the first time with the eyes of Christophe. She saw her delicate features, her short nose, her fine mouth, her slender figure, her graceful movements. Ah, how sad! What would not she have given to possess Sabine's body and live in it? She did not go closely into why it should be preferred to her own. Her own? What had she done to possess such a body? What a burden it was upon her! How ugly it seemed to her! It was odious to her! And to think that nothing but death could ever free her from it, she was at once too proud and too humble to complain that she was not loved. She had no right to do so, and she tried even more to humble herself. But her instinct revolted. No, it was not just. Why should she have such a body, she and not Sabine? And why should Sabine be loved? What had she done to be loved? Rosa saw her with no kindly eye, lazy, careless, egoistic, indifferent towards everybody, not looking after her house, or her child, or anybody, loving only herself, living only for sleeping, dawdling, and doing nothing. And it was such a woman who pleased, who pleased Christophe. Christophe, who was so severe, Christophe, who was so discerning, Christophe, whom she esteemed and admired more than anybody. How could Christophe be blind to it? She could not help from time to time dropping an unkind remark about Sabine in his hearing. She did not wish to do so, but the impulse was stronger than herself. She was always sorry for it, for she was a kind creature and disliked speaking ill of anybody. But she was the more sorry because she drew down on herself such cruel replies as showed how much Christophe was in love. He did not mince matters. Hurt in his love, he tried to hurt in return, and succeeded. 
Rosa would make no reply and go out with her head bowed and her lips tight-pressed to keep from crying. She thought that it was her own fault, that she deserved it for having hurt Christophe by attacking the object of his love. Her mother was less patient. Frau Vogel, who saw everything, and old Euler, also had not been slow to notice Christophe's interviews with their young neighbor. It was not difficult to guess their romance. Their secret projects of one day marrying Rosa to Christophe were set at naught by it, and that seemed to them a personal affront of Christophe, although he was not supposed to know that they had disposed of him without consulting his wishes. But Amalia's despotism did not admit of ideas contrary to her own, and it seemed scandalous to her that Christophe should have disregarded the contemptuous opinion she had often expressed of Sabine. She did not hesitate to repeat it for his benefit. Whenever he was present, she found some excuse for talking about her neighbor. She cast about for the most injurious things to say of her, things which might sting Christophe most cruelly, and with the crudity of her point of view and language, she had no difficulty in finding them. The ferocious instinct of a woman, so superior to that of a man in the art of doing evil, as well as of doing good, made her insist less on Sabine's laziness and moral failings than on her uncleanliness. Her indiscreet and prying eye had watched through the window for proofs of it in the secret processes of Sabine's toilet, and she exposed them with coarse complacency. When from decency she could not say everything, she left the more to be understood. Christophe would go pale with shame and anger. He would go white as a sheet, and his lips would quiver. Rosa, foreseeing what must happen, would implore her mother to have done. She would even try to defend Sabine but she only succeeded in making Amalia more aggressive. And suddenly Christophe would leap from his chair. He would thump on the table and begin to shout that it was monstrous to speak of a woman, to spy upon her, to expose her misfortunes. Only an evil mind could so persecute a creature who was good, charming, quiet, keeping herself to herself, and doing no harm to anybody, and speaking no ill of anybody. But they were making a great mistake if they thought they could do her harm. They only made him more sympathetic and made her kindness shine forth only the more clearly. Amalia would feel then that she had gone too far, but she was hurt by feeling it, and shifting her ground she would say that it was only too easy to talk of kindness, that the word was called in as an excuse for everything. Heavens! It was easy enough to be thought kind when you never bothered about anything or anybody, and never did your duty. To which Christophe would reply that the first duty of all was to make life pleasant for others, but that there were people for whom duty meant only ugliness, unpleasantness, tiresomeness, and everything that interferes with the liberty of others and annoys and injures their neighbors, their servants, their families, and themselves. God save us from such people, and such a notion of duty, as from the plague. They would grow venomous. Amalia would be very bitter. Christophe would not budge an inch. And the result of it all was that henceforth 
Christophe made a point of being seen continually with Sabine. He would go and knock at her door, he would talk gaily and laugh with her, he would choose moments when Amalia and Rosa could see him. Amalia would avenge herself with angry words, but the innocent Rosa's heart was rent and torn by this refinement of cruelty. She felt that he detested them and wished to avenge himself, and she wept bitterly. End of section 28